0: I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Malachi chapter two. Uh, we're going to pick things up today at verse ten. I've been here at sunrise for a long time, and one of the challenges, one of the difficulties, is some of you have heard all my stories, maybe not all of them, but anyways. So. Uh, this morning, I want to share a story. Some of you have heard it or bits of it, and uh, I ask for your grace. Some of you are newer and haven't, so uh, it was what the Lord brought to my mind as I was thinking about this text and how to begin, how to, how to enter into this story, and so uh, I want to share it with you. It was the middle of August in 1996 when I first told Christine that I really, really liked her and I officially asked her out. We had been, for a period of about four months, been seeing each other weekly, hanging out, doing things, uh, but we'd never actually talked about a relationship, and uh, so that there's, there's a story there that I won't get into, but Kristaline didn't think there was anything going on, that I did this with all the girls, but anyways. <laughs> Before that, we had had three dates over a period of eight months. The third one led into that season of seeing each other regularly, Uh, but the first one, uh, eight months earlier, was the worst date and shortest date of my life. That's another story too, but uh, middle of August 1996, the day I was going to to pick her up and I was like, okay, I'm going to tell this woman that I like her, and that I want to have a relationship with her, and for me, I had no doubt at that point, this is the woman I'm going to marry, uh, at least from my end of it, I was confident, I knew, and so, but as I pulled up, her, she had moved back for, after studies, she was living with her parents in a in a condominium place, I had to buzz in to drive onto the property, and, and uh Christine for those of you who don't know, she, she's celiac, and 26 years ago, there weren't a lot of good gluten-free options, so I realized as I thought about this, and it's strange, but it hit me as I walked up to punch in the the code on the thing. It just hit me, this realization that this, Dennis, will impact what you eat for the rest of your life in profound ways. There will be far more rice and vegetables than I was accustomed to eating. That's the thought that crossed my mind, strange as it might seem. This is going to impact in a massive way what you eat. And I thought, I'm going for it, and I punched in the code, and the rest is history, and to be sure, I've eaten a lot more rice and vegetables over the last 25 years than I had prior to that, I'm sure, at least willingly. No, no regrets. No regrets. Definitely worth it. That's a story from my life, our lives, uh, about massive implications for me that came with marrying Chris from entering in a relationship with her. This morning... We're looking at a portion of Malachi that, that speaks about the massive implications for marriage for those who are in a relationship with God. This text addresses the topic, the issue of marriage, and it speaks to the massive implications for marriage for those who are in relationship with God. Living in a relationship with God has profound and indispensable. Uh, implications for marriage. Now, before I read the text to you, I want to remind those of you who've been with us of some of the contextual matters here and bring others of you up to speed who haven't been with us. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. It is the last of the 12 minor prophets. Uh, Minor, not because the message is insignificant, but minor because of the length of these books in comparison to the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. Malachi is the last one in the New Testament. And after Malachi, uh, there is 400 years of silence from God before the New Testament uh, begins. The New Testament story begins with John the Baptist showing up. Now, uh, what that means historically is that Malachi's message comes in the post-exilic period. So the Old Testament story, I we not go into all of it, but God's people, they've already experienced sort of the golden years of their nationhood. Uh, David, King David and Solomon, those were the great years, at least David and the beginning of Solomon's reign. But after that, the kingdom was split. It was divided into the ten northern tribes of Israel and the southern uh, nation of Judah. And we, we can read through the Old Testament story. Both nations don't do all that well. But in 722, uh, the nation of Israel, the ten tribes in the north, go into exile because of their uh, idolatry, their unfaithfulness to God. They, they go into pagan worship. In 722, the Assyrians invade. They're taken in exile, never to return. The ten lost tribes of Israel. The southern nation of Judah, also called Israel, and Malachi referred to as Israel. Uh, doesn't fare a whole lot better. They stick around for about 150 years, but they too succumb to idolatry, and they too go into exile, this time at the hands of the Babylonians. The Babylonians invade. They lay siege to Jerusalem. And when Jerusalem falls, the wall is torn down. The temple of Solomon is is destroyed. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and the people are taken away. But God promised a return. And so uh, years later, a remnant, some Uh, Some Israelites return. some from Judah return to Palestine, to Jerusalem. And so this is the post-exilic period. They've they've come out of exile. They're back in the land, some of them. But things are not like they expected. Uh, Likely, we don't know precisely when Malachi shows up on the scene. Likely, the wall has been rebuilt. Certainly, we know the temple has been rebuilt. But the temple that has been rebuilt uh, pales in comparison to the glory of the temple that Solomon had built. Most of Jerusalem likely is still in ruins, even if the wall has been reconstructed. A small, the, the, the population that has returned is small, a, f- a small fraction of, of what was there before. They remain under foreign control. The Persians, they're under their, their thumb. And so things are not, not the glorious return that was expected. And so God's people are fairly disappointed. They're filled with doubt about their special status with God, about God's love for them. And it's into that context that Malachi speaks. In the beginning of Malachi, if you were with us two weeks ago, uh, it begins with God's announcement to them, God's declaration, I have loved you. And that's not just I used to love you. I have loved you and I still love you. That's the message that Malachi begins with. God affirms, he asserts their unique role as his special people called by him into relationship. And if you were here, you would recall, it's not simply for their sake. He has called them so that through them all the nations on the earth might be blessed. He's called them to this mission, to this role. Malachi begins with that declaration, I have loved you and I love you still. The passage we looked at last Sunday, God calls His people out, specifically the priests, but also the people, uh, with with regards to their dishonoring Him. He speaks about their, their worship. They are coming to the temple, they are offering sacrifices, but they are offering Animals that are rejects. Animals they don't want. Lame, blind, diseased. They are are flat out disobeying God's clear teaching when it comes to sacrificing and and what they're supposed to bring. And they are bringing dishonor to God. In fact, God at one point, uh, if you were here, He says, Oh, that you would shut the temple doors so that you do not light useless fires on my altar. They're going through the motions of religious worship, but their hearts are not right. They're not... Delighted in God. They're not responding to God's prior love with love for Him. God doesn't want us to merely go through the motions. He wants our hearts. He wants us to find a delight in Him. To love Him. And then to bear witness to Him to a watching world. Remember if you were here, for He is good and glorious. For He is a great King. That's the mission of God's people. That's the mission of the church. That through us, the world would see the greatness, the glory... The goodness the graciousness of god the great king we pick things up at verse 10 verse 10 to 16 of chapter 2 this morning do we not all have one father did not one god create us why do we profane the covenant of our ancestors by being unfaithful to one another Judah has been unfaithful. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying women who worship a foreign God. As for the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord remove him from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings an offering to the Lord Almighty. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer looks with favor on your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask why? It is because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the one God made you? You belong to Him in body and spirit. And what does the one God seek? Godly offspring. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. The man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect, says the Lord Almighty. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful. The remaining time we have together this morning, I want to ask three questions with you, and we'll spend the bulk of our time answering the first one. The three questions are, what is condemned or what is forbidden? Second question, what is expected? What, what is called for? And third, what is, what is the reason? What's the purpose for that call? So what is condemned, what is expected, and what's the purpose? We'll spend most time on point number one. What is condemned, or question one. In, in this portion of Malachi, the, the focus shifts from the administration of the sacrificial system, which was uh, center stage last week in the text we looked at. It shifts from that to a focus on marriage, Now, not everyone is married. There are singles here, and that's good. This word still is for all. Uh, The the Bible affirms both marriage and singleness. I want to say that off the beginning. But this text focuses uh, on marriage and what was going on in Israel in this regard. Now, there are two specific matters related to marriage that are addressed. The first is interfaith marriage. And the second is divorce. Now, before we turn and look at each of those in turn, uh, I want us to consider verse 10, which introduces us to uh, what will come. So, verse 10, we read this. Do we not all have one Father? Did not one God create us? Why do we profane the covenant of our ancestors by being unfaithful to one another? This verse is sometimes used incorrectly when speaking of humanity as uh, the, the unity of humanity as being one family, the brother or the sister or the, the, the familyhood, if you will of, of all of humanity and, and, but that, that we need to realize that is not what Malachi is talking about here that, that is to misread, misuse this verse. Malachi here is speaking specifically to Israel, to god 's chosen people, his covenant people he is Speaking of their special, unique relationship is with God, with Yahweh, as those called by Him to this mission through whom God will bring blessing to all the nations. Malachi first uses the figure of speech of Father. Now that imagery of God as Father is relatively rare in the Old Testament, but it's something we've already encountered here in Malachi. In Malachi 1.6, text we looked at last week, it began with, If I am a father, where is the honor? due me. God, Yahweh takes on this, if I'm your father, why have you not honored me? They're dishonoring him through bringing these these blemished animals to sacrifice. In Deuteronomy, we read this, Is this the way you repay the Lord, you foolish and unwise people? Is he not your father, your creator, who made you and formed you? So this language of God as father speaks of the fact that their identity is rooted in that relationship. He's their father, they are his children. He's their creator. That's the point uh, Malachi is making here, speaking to Israel. They've received their identity, their very existence uh, from Yahweh, their father. Second, he speaks of Yahweh as their creator pointing to His creation of them as a nation, to their covenant ceremony at Mount Sinai, where God made them His people. He entered into this relationship. Uh, This is rooted in the action of God. Now that is the truth that Malachi is getting at here. He's speaking to them as God's chosen people in in that unique uh, role in His redemptive plan. Our text begins with that. And, And now that being the case, Malachi asks a question. A question directed to the whole community of God's people. He says, why do we profane the covenant of our ancestors by being unfaithful to one another? In light of who we are, in light of our covenant relationship with God, in light of the fact that Yahweh is our Father, why do we profane that relationship? To profane something means to fail to acknowledge as holy, to to treat lightly. So whatever it is the people are doing that we will get to, what they are doing is an indication that they are treating lightly this covenant relationship they as a people have with Yahweh, that Yahweh has established with them. They're not recognizing that relationship as the holy and precious thing that it is. They're not living in a way that is appropriate in light of the the preciousness, the value of that covenant of the fact that Yahweh is, as we saw last week as we heard in the text, Yahweh is the great king, but they're treating this as a trivial matter. Now I want you to note this before we turn to the specifics of what they're doing. This third portion of Malachi begins with this verse and speaks to the people as a community. And, And that's really important because even as we turn and look at what it says about marriage, we need to understand the communal aspect of this. See, we... We so easily read Scripture uh, individualistically. This is just God and me. But the reality is God speaks to us in community. And even the things He's going to say about marriage have a communal impact. Marriage is about more than just you and your spouse if you're married. Marriage is about more than just you and your spouse and your family. There is a, a communal aspect to this. And so we need to understand that. But, but here's what he's getting at. Why do we profane the covenant? Why do we treat lightly this covenant relationship we have with God through what we're doing in marriage is the question. The impact goes beyond. So let's turn to the two specific matters related to marriage that Malachi addresses. The first matter with regards to marriage that is addressed, the thing that is forbidden by God is interfaith marriages. Look with me at verse 11. Judah has been unfaithful. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying women who worship a foreign God. The, the word sanctuary here, often used to speak of the temple or Jerusalem, in this context actually speaks to the whole people of God. They have desecrated themselves as a community of God's redeemed, chosen, loved people by what they're doing. And what is it that they're doing they are entering into interfaith marriages. Now let me be clear, this has nothing to do with interethnic marriages. This has nothing to do with cross-cultural marriages. Uh, there are numerous examples in Scripture where foreigners marry an Israelite and they are warmly welcomed. The issue is that they, those, in those cases, those individuals, those foreigners, uh, enter into a relationship with Yahweh. You think of Moses' wife, uh, a Cushite woman. We think of Ruth, a Moabite, who, who marries Boaz. They were welcomed because they accepted the true faith of Israel. What is forbidden here is marriage between someone who is a member of God's people and someone who is not, someone who is worshiping another god or someone who does not share that same faith, that commitment to Yahweh. Specifically, in Malachi's day, Israelite men were marrying foreign women, pagan women, Women who were idolaters. Women who were worshiping uh, other gods, non-gods, if you will. And, and God forbid it. And we have maybe the worst example is King Solomon himself. Listen to this from First Kings. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter. Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidians, Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them, because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love, and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. God in His Word makes it clear. He forbids His people from marrying those who worship other gods. He forbids His people from marrying those who do not share their relationship with Yahweh. Yet that is precisely what's happening here in Israel. It's precisely what's happening here in post-exilic Israel. Israel that is returned from exile. They went into exile because of their unfaithfulness. They went in exile because of their idolatry. Because they, they got caught up in and they worshipped false gods. They worshipped idols. And now they're back. They've barely returned from exile. Exile on account of their idolatry and they're acting in defiance of what God has clearly asserted that they are not to marry those who worship other gods. That they're not to marry those, enter into marriage with those who do not share that relationship with Him. That same truth is asserted in numerous places in numerous ways in the New Testament. So I want to take a moment, and I know this can be a difficult thing, and I, I want to speak with great gentleness but with great urgency to not just young people but but anyone who who is single who aspires to be married. God speaks to you on that, and He. He says that you are not to enter into a marriage with someone who does not share your commitment to Him. This is a vital thing. I implore you to obey Jesus in this. Obey God in this. Too many times, believers, disciples of Jesus, uh, stubbornly make other choices. You enter into a relationship. You fall in love, and maybe you hope that your boyfriend will come to faith, or the heart wants what the heart wants and you enter into this relationship and it's, it's in contradiction to what God calls His people to. Marriage is to be two people who share that faith, that relationship with Yahweh. I've seen over my years as a pastor too many times where we see the fruit of this, where the, the, the believer actually, their faith can be impacted negatively. It doesn't every time where people's commitment to Christ seems, oh, there might be still mental assent, but there's less and less evidence of discipleship because that person whom you bound yourself to in the closest human relationship does not share your commitment to Christ, does not share your commitment to Yahweh. And it's forbidden by God. God says, no, this should not be for God's people. Missionary dating, Right? You enter in that relationship, well, maybe God will use me. And you know what? Thank God in His grace and His mercy. There are stories where God works despite our sin and brings redemption. And we can rejoice and give thanks to Him. But brothers and sisters, I want you to hear, this is not God's way. Young people, those who aspire to be married, do not enter into a relationship with someone who does not share that commitment to God, who does not share your faith. God forbids it. And for those who have done this, those who find themselves in this place, I, I, w- I want to speak to you uh, words of grace. God is gracious. Even when we've sinned, even when we've rebelled against Him, there is grace. And so I want to speak that word over you. Not judgment, but grace. But let's, let's also have the courage to be honest about what we've done. Let's be honest as the church about what this is. God says that marriage is to be between you and that partner who shares that faith, that commitment to Yahweh, that commitment to Jesus. The second matter that is addressed related to marriage is divorce. Divorce is forbidden. Look with me at verse 16 and then where it makes that explicit, and then we'll back up and look at some earlier verses. Verse 16, we read this The man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel. Does violence to the one he should protect, says the Lord Almighty. Divorce is the issue here. Israelites are divorcing. Um, Israelite men are divorcing their wives. That's the issue. And with that in mind, let's look back at verse thirteen and fourteen that are speaking to this secondary, this second matter. Verse thirteen: Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer looks with favor on your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask why? It is because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. There's a few things going on here, and I want to take a moment to help unpack them with you here. Uh, they're all connected with, uh, with this issue of divorce and sp- what's going on specifically uh, with What is significant is divorcing the wife of your youth. We'll look at that in a minute. But first, let's let's note this. Uh, I want to say a few things uh, by way of context about pagan worship and and the the understanding that pagans had about worship and sacrifices. Most ancient people, most ancient pagans, that is those who worshipped idols, those who worshipped gods, believed that sacrifices were guaranteed to work. Okay, here's what... Old Testament scholar Douglas Stewart writes, "...central to the idea of idolatry practiced by all ancient peoples was the notion that an idol captured the presence of a god or goddess and thus guaranteed that a worshiper would have his or her altar gift noticed and credited by the god being worshipped." So, so there's this belief that a sacrifice works almost mechanically. I do this and I get this. I do this and the god or goddess will hear me and will respond. In fact... There was this belief that no matter how powerful a god or goddess was, the one thing they were not powerful enough to do was to feed themselves, which is where sacrifices came. They couldn't feed themselves. So you fed them, they were obliged. It was a way of purchasing favor, if you will. That's the pagan mindset. Not only that, but they also believed that uh, putting on a really passionate, emotional display, being loud, that that would, that would curry favor, that that would get the attention of the gods. It would, it, would, it would influence the gods, that they would recognize your earnestness. So that's what Malachi is speaking to. We need to understand that as we read verse 13. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because He no longer looks with favor on your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. Now we know from last week that they're bringing blemished animals in disobedience to God. We know that they're going through the motions of sacrifice, but their hearts are far from Yahweh. We already know that, but, but now we, we see them. They're, they're weeping and they're wailing and they're trying to demonstrate to Yahweh their earnestness so that they get favors from Him, but God will not be manipulated. And what they're failing completely to recognize is that God's not responding because of their unfaithfulness in this issue of, of, of marriage. They, they know that things are not right between them and Yahweh. They sense that, so they weep and wail, but He's not responding because they are unfaithful to the covenant. Why, Yahweh? Why are you not responding? The Lord's answer is because of their unfaithfulness to the wife of your youth. The Lord is a witness against them. Now what is meant by this, this uh, phrase, the wife of your youth? Well, in the Old Testament era, and this will freak some people out, in the Old Testament era, marriage was arranged. Often, or sorry, sometimes they were even arranged before a child was born. Hey, if I have a son... You have a daughter, okay. Sometimes even before you're born. But, but almost always before those children would reach puberty, their father, sometimes mothers would be involved, but always the father would be involved in arranging that marriage. Now we in the West, like we have this idea of... Anyways. What we need to understand is that our way of thinking about marriage and romance, nothing wrong with romance, but, but our way is fairly new on this stage of human history. Okay, this was... This was the way things went. And an interesting aside, isn't it, that that Yahweh is their father, and as Malachi speaks to this issue of marriage, it makes sense in their experience that the father has a say, in fact, is responsible for who they marry. He's speaking now, their heavenly father, Yahweh, is speaking to them about marriage. He's speaking to that issue. Notice this too. Look, at, look with me at what we read in verse 4. Not only is she the wife of your youth, but she is your partner. Uh, the, the word translated partner there is that the language of, of, of partnership, of companionship. It, it speaks to equality. The wife of your youth, your partner. In a culture that decidedly saw women as inferior, the Bible does not. She is your partner equal. And, and so... Men were not simply free to divorce their wives, to treat them like property, and yet that's what's going on. Thirdly, she's called the wife of your marriage covenant. Again, speaking of husbands and wives as equals, partners in a covenant arrangement, a covenant uh, that they've entered into with one another. And so, again, a husband doesn't have the right to simply divorce his wife, to treat her like an object, as an inferior that's what's happening, and Yahweh calls it unfaithfulness. You are being unfaithful to the wife of your youth. This, this woman that you have been with, set apart for, from early on in your life. This woman that you have been with for years. This woman who is your partner, your companion, your, your, with whom you're, you're in covenant with. The Bible calls it Christ... Yahweh calls it unfaithfulness. And that's why here God is not accepting their sacrifices. This is why He's not responding with favor. They're going through the motions of worship. We saw that last week and here. But here they are being unfaithful in their marriages. In the covenant of marriage. They're weeping and wailing and trying to demonstrate their sincerity, their earnestness, but they are being unfaithful in marriages. They are divorcing their wives, these Israelite men. And, and the text says that in doing so, they are doing violence to the one. Each man is doing violence to the one he should protect. Elizabeth Ackmeyer, Old Testament scholar, writes this, the thought is that these men have spent years of mutual companionship with their spouses, building their homes, raising their children, facing life's vicissitudes together, and then, and then they have abandoned their wives for the sake of other women. That's what's going on. So, Men in Israel here, they've returned after exile and they are divorcing their wives, the wives of their youth, their covenant partners, and they are marrying pagan women in defiance of God. Verse 16, the man who hates and divorces wife does violence to the one he should protect. God here is forbidding divorce. Divorce is not what God wants. Now, a great deal could be said about divorce what the Bible teaches on this. And this isn't just theoretical. This touches many of our lives in one way or another. I come from a family where divorce happened. Some of you, perhaps too, or have experienced that or are in family and in, in, in the church. And so what do we to say? Well, I, we can't say today all that Scripture says. We can't wrestle through everything. But I, I want to say a few things and say them clearly. Divorce is not God's desire. Divorce here is something that he is forbidding. Now, it can be complicated. Because whereas Malachi here condemns divorce under certain conditions, specifically he says, if you hate and divorce your wife, that's speaking about men man, would just go, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm done with you. I don't love you anymore. I'm leaving. That's what he's condemning. Moses allows divorce in, under certain conditions conditions and Jesus himself forbids divorce except he he says except marital unfaithfulness so there's that complication and we also know that sometimes divorce happens because one party chooses to end the marriage and and I think scripture speaks to that and and that's something to wrestle through but but what about the the innocent party and I'm not saying innocent party as as in they were a perfect spouse or that they are sinlessly perfect but There are marriages that end because one person decides it's over. What I want us to hear is that God hates divorce. Divorce is not God's desire. It is not His design for His people. And we need to be careful as the church because I think we often we can err in in one of two directions. On the one hand, we can stop speaking the truth, the hard truth that Marriage is to be till death does you part. And that means it will inevitably mean through hard times, difficult times. Uh, Marriage, anyone who's married for for longer than, say, a month, I don't know that it even takes that long, you realize that marriage has its challenging moments, challenging seasons. God hates divorce. He doesn't want divorce. Divorce is not His design. It's not His plan. And so we need to proclaim that truth without apology, but we also, as a church, need to be gentle and gracious because we can err on the other side of, of, of hurting, further hurting, the innocent party in some divorces. So there's there's complexity there. I want to I want to say that, but I want to say what's happening in Israel is forbidden. Hating your, your 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 spouse and leaving, just deciding, okay, I don't I don't like I can, I'm not doing this anymore, and walking away. And God says no. He calls people to faithfulness calls them faithfulness in marriage. So that is the first question we wanted to ask today. Uh, These last two will go much quicker, I promise. The second thing that I wanted to ask is what is expected? What is called for? I want you to remember that Malachi is proclaiming this message in post-exilic Israel. They're back in the land they are God's beloved people. They still have a mission that through them all the nations would see the greatness of God, the great King. Uh, but they're not living in obedience. They are, they're breaking covenant with God. And, and the, in this text, the point being made is that they're being unfaithful to their marriage in the marriage covenant is unfaithfulness to God. And remember, I said your marriage is about more than just you. Your, your unfaithfulness in the context of marriage is unfaithfulness to God. Be it through Whether you enter into an interfaith marriage, which God forbids and says, no, you you need to marry someone who shares that faith commitment with you, or through divorce, they're violating more than they think. The violation of the marriage covenant is a violation of covenant with Yahweh. Ackmeyer says this, marriage in this passage is not strictly a private or civil or secular matter, but a covenant ordained and protected by God. Its violation therefore affects the relationship with God. And so they are called to faithfulness. Faithfulness in the context of marriage uh, for all those who are married. Uh, Faithfulness for all of us in, in other relationships as well. Though this text specifically is speaking of marriage, we are called to be faithful as God's people. Faithful in friendships. Faithful in our commitment to one another as a church. Faithful in marriage. The text concludes with these words, so be on your guard and do not be unfaithful. They, they were to be on guard. They were to be attentive, alert, vigilant to the dangers that faced them. The, the dangers they faced in their marriage unions. They were called to not be faithful, to be faithful, to remain true to their vows, to remain true to their mate, to be faithful. That's the call. That's the expectation. And, and remember this whole book, the book of Malachi, is, is grounded in, it's founded upon God's declaration first of His love for them. And let's think about this for a moment. Yahweh is speaking to a disobedient, dishonoring people. Right? We've all just—we're we're just three weeks in. And last week we looked at this text where they're bringing reject animals that they don't want, anyways, in, in clear defiance of God. Lame, blind, diseased, and pretending that that's good enough. And, and God doesn't go. I'm out of here. They are divorcing, and they are making marrying pagan women the men. In in, in flat out rebellion against what God has clearly said. And God doesn't go, I'm done. No, God says, this book is grounded in this. I have loved you and I love you still. His love is the foundational matter and it's out of that place. His faithfulness to them that He calls them to faithfulness, that He calls us to faithfulness. Third question, what is the reason, the purpose of all this, this call? And let me note again that both marriage and singleness are affirmed in Scripture. Both marriage and singleness are gifts. They are both gifts to the church. They both present challenges and blessings. Here this text speaks specifically to marriage. And I want to pose this question in regards to marriage. Why is it that God makes this connection between His covenant with His people and the marriage covenant between a husband and a wife? The answer is found in, in this, that the, the marriage is about far more than we often think. Marriage is about far more than just you and your mate. Marriage is about more than just your family. Uh, marriage, marriage is an illustration. It, it, marriage isn't the ultimate thing. There's an ultimate thing that it points to. Listen to this, these words from David Platt. When God made man, then woman, and then brought them together in a relationship called marriage... He wasn't simply rolling the dice, drawing straws, or flipping a coin. He was painting a picture. His intent from the start was to illustrate his love for his people. For God created the marriage relationship to point to a greater reality. From the moment marriage was instituted, God aimed to give the world an illustration of the gospel. That is, every marriage is to be an illustration every marriage between believers is to be an illustration of God's love for his people see we are all called in general to reflect the likeness of God we were his image bearers that image was marred through our sin through our rebellion and, and God Christ restores that his spirit fills us and we live as witnesses we live in community we saw this in the book of Philippians we live as a as a colony of heaven We live as those who are redeemed. We live to bear witness to Christ, that is, to be his image bearers, to reflect his character. That's true of us individually. One of the ways that God also reflects his love for the church is through the institution of marriage, the love that is in marriage. Your marriage, if you're married, is not just about romance, it's not just about your partnership with your mate or your family or companionship. Your marriage is to be a picture of God's love for his people. And the love of His people for God. It is in fact, it is this drama that you and your spouse get to live out. You, you act out the story of redemption. That, that's, uh, and both wives and husbands have a role to play. We, we both play different roles, uh, but we play the part of Christ. And that's why Ephesians 5 says what it does. And, and I know Ephesians 5 might be wildly offensive in our world and even to many of us in the church. What? You know, wives, submit to your husbands. As you submit to Christ, Christ uh, husbands love your wives as Christ loves the church. Do you, you see? Both both men and women are called to play this role of Christ. Wives submit to their husbands as uh, as as the church submits to Christ. That is, as the people of God show. Okay, it's not about me. I give up control. I surrender. And men are called to love their wives like Christ loved the church, where where it's a sacrificial love that says, I will lay down my life for you. It's not about what I want. It's not about putting me first. It's putting you first. And so both a a husband and a wife act out this drama of redemption with playing these different roles of Christ in order that a watching world will see Jesus and be drawn to him. Tim Keller says this, it's important to remember that the entire purpose of having a marriage is to reenact the gospel. As in, any, and as in any play, the players have to take on roles. In marriage, the husband and the wife both take on the role of Jesus. A husband takes on the role of Jesus as the head of the church. The wife takes on the role of Jesus. He is the son submissive to the Father for the sake of our salvation. Marriage is ultimately about acting this Drama of redemption together with your mate. Marriage is about more than you think. If you're here with us this morning and you're not a believer in Christ, you've never surrendered to Him, I want to acknowledge that perhaps you've heard some hard things here in God's Word this morning. But I hope that you also see that you have been created for and called into something far greater than you ever imagined. And that's true whether you're single, whether you're married. We're called to be image bearers, to reflect the likeness of God. And if you have the privilege of being married now, if, if you are in a marriage relationship or will be, I want you to hear this. Young people, think of this. As you look for a mate, you're looking for someone who shares your commitment to Christ with whom you can reenact the drama of redemption that others would see in, in you, in your relationship God's love for the church. Believers, we need to hear Christ's call to be faithful. We need to hear this call to be faithful. and, And we need to know that that call to faithfulness comes out of first God's declaration of His love for us. See, God doesn't love us because we're faithful. Malachi begins with God declaring, I have loved you and I love you still. And he speaks that over a people who are a mess. I want you to hear that, brothers and sisters. This is not about cleaning ourselves up so that God loves us, but we must hear his call to to faithfulness in response to his love, in response to his faithfulness. Our hope is not in us getting it right, our hope is not in our ability to be faithful. Our hope is in the faithfulness of God who loves us, who has been gracious to us. Our hope is in the One who is the faithful One. For more than 25 years now, I've been eating more rice and vegetables. (laughs) Entering into a covenant of marriage with Chris has had massive implications not only on my diet, but my life as a whole. Entering into a relationship with Yahweh, with God, with Christ, has massive implications on our lives, every area of our lives. And here in particular, we see that it has implications for marriage. It has implications for who we marry. It has implications for uh, staying in that marriage. It has implications for what that marriage is all about. And we are called to be faithful in these things. Faithful in marriage. Faithful in singleness. Faithful in everything. That's the call. But we need not be overwhelmed and discouraged. For this is not something we produce by our own strength. But Christ who is faithful is with us. Christ who is faithful is in us. He lives His life in us. The One who was faithful even to death and death on a cross, who bore our penalty in our place so that we might redeem because out of God's love for us, He has been faithful. And in response to His faithfulness, in response to His love, we are invited to lean in. To invite Him to work in us. Invite Him to lead us in the way of faithfulness knowing that He is always with us, the One who is the faithful One. Amen.